Shuka Amuna was once touted as a future leader of the Labour Party. In this week's IC interview, he explains why you may be able to do more good in the world of business than politics. The former Shadow Business Secretary had a more turbulent 2019 than most. A staunch Remainer, he left Labour to form a pro-EU Change UK party in February. Just four months later, he joined the Liberal Democrats, before ultimately losing his seat to the Conservatives in December's general election. Now, like many uprooted members of Parliament, he is carving out a career in the private sector. As head of ESG at communications firm Edelman, one of many companies to launch an environmental, social and governance division in recent years, he advises businesses and asset managers on meeting the growing demand for responsible investments. In this podcast, he tells me why more executives are considering their impact on the environment, society and other stakeholders. He also weighs in on how politicians should support a green transition and how the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic thus far has been what he calls a catalogue of incompetence and failure. So thanks, Chuka, for taking the time to speak to me for this week's IC interview. So after about a decade in Parliament, you've now joined Edelman and the burgeoning world of ESG. Had you always been interested in issues around stakeholder capitalism, or did you see this more as a good career move, given the huge interest in this area now? (laughs) <laughs> well, look, thanks for having me on your podcast um, this week, Oliver. Uh, for me, it was a natural um, next chapter in what I've been doing in life, I suppose, because for the last 10 years, as you said, I've, I'd been in the House of Commons. And for a large chunk of that time, more than half that time, I had led on public policy issues around the role of business and on ESG policy from the opposition benches. And when I became the Shadow Secretary of State for Business Innovation and Skills and was working out where to position the opposition, a natural place to plant the flag was in the arena of responsible capitalism, as we called it in those days. And that was quite challenging because on the right, you would get attacked because, frankly, the kind of Milton Friedman Chicago school of thinking was still very much the dominant mindset and on the left well they felt that there was a contradiction in terms between responsible and capitalism or stakeholder and capitalism now i've always been a capitalist i just believe that there are different varieties of capitalism and the one that had been predominated for the last three or four decades or certainly the last two to three decades hasn't delivered the goods for enough people so we need to reform it and move to a more of a sustainable and stakeholder model. Um, But of course, then we didn't really call it ESG. Um, Shared value, how businesses deliver shared value was very much the talking point in certain circles. I was right in the middle of that debate in Parliament, but also out of it as well. The academics, Kramer and Porter, their shared value piece in the Harvard Business Review was very influential at the time. But then ESG was conflated very much with um, CSR, whereas I think the, the situation is very different now. We can perhaps come on to that. But anyway, having been involved in that debate for 10 years, I'd come into politics having had just under 10 years before that as a corporate employment lawyer working at the, the, the that's probably the wrong word to use, the coalface, but working very much on the front line of the S&G in ESG. So when I came out of politics, and it was never my plan to be a lifer. Um, I wanted to return to capital markets and financial services where I started my working life, my career. And 
uh, develop an ESG corporate advisory capability and career, I suppose. And so that's what led me into ESG. It's, it's how the 20 years of experience that I had built up seemed to be most relevant. So you've returned to the front line, as you say, around, I guess, at the same time as these ESG issues have been moving more to the forefront of public discussion and there may be not so much a fringe issue as when you were first talking about them in Parliament. But behind the rosy statements, maybe that more and more marketing teams are pointing out now about the environment, about Black Lives Matter, I mean, how receptive really are the executives in the C-suite to these issues when you talk to them now? COVID is definitely intensifying scrutiny of business in, like, like never before. And I think social issues have been brought up to the same standing and given as much attention as environmental issues. George Floyd as well in the short term has put a microscope on what business is doing around issues of racial injustice. But constantly in the background, both during this pandemic, but also before it, has been the influence of millennials. And we are currently in the midst of an ongoing $30 trillion or more asset transfer from baby boomers to millennials. And they want to see value from their investments, but they want to see their values reflected in them too. And so what is leading the C-suite to take much more, pay much more attention to this is actually the market. I'm often bemused by those, the old advocates who still bang on about shareholder primacy, and it's not really a place of business to take a view on stakeholder issues, etc. You know, that's for government and markets should do the markets work. The reason that companies are having to sit up and pay attention to this and wealth managers are telling asset managers to integrate ESG in what they do is because the ultimate asset owners and beneficiaries in, you know, the clients, the customers are demanding this. And so they are taking it more seriously. And this is why, whereas 10 years ago, like I said, there was a conflation with CSR. What you're now seeing in big finance houses is, you know, the appointment of people and people taking responsibility for ESG. So by CSR, you mean corporate social I do, sorry, I mean corporate social responsibility, yes. So you talk about the shift from CSR, corporate social responsibility, to... Well, I think, I think they're two different things. And I think whereas 10 years ago, there was a conflation between the two things, I think now there's an understanding that actually ESG is quite a different thing. It goes to the core of how businesses run. I mean, I think the way investors see the, the integration of environmental, social and governance factors is, is a, it's basically a proxy for prudent risk management or good management. Uh, that's the starting point. Long before you can, you know, you get into the debate about whether, you know, ESG produces is, is a good part of your alpha starting point is mitigation of risk so it's no longer about being just being a socially responsible company it's doing that to be a financially responsible company yes so i'd say it's actually both because if you are socially responsible and you you take into account stakeholder interests ultimately that delivers long-term shareholder value you talk about the shift in assets to millennials and we see how much people from my generation are talking about environmental and social issues on the TV, on social media now. And the idea that this is a financial argument for asset managers, for companies to take into account, it makes sense. But how concrete is the evidence? Are the numbers behind that? We might see millennials saying they want to punish harmful companies, reward good companies, but how many millennials 
are actually doing this. I think of Boohoo, for instance, which faces serious allegations around its supply chain early this year. Their profits were just reported and they're doing very well through the pandemic. I might think of certain big tech companies who faced issues around the ESG area that seem to have hurt their performance. Is there maybe a dissonance in what millennials and what consumers are saying and how they're actually acting with their money? Well, um, I think there may be. I think that's a fair point. So in the Edelman Trust Barometer, where we measure ESG sentiment and how everyday citizens interact with these issues, we know that, for example, during the pandemic, a third of people who were responding to that survey, which was done over 12 markets um, around the world, were saying that they had actively successfully persuaded acquaintances not to buy from businesses that they perceived to be doing the wrong thing during the pandemic. And we know in the summer, in the wake of the um, dreadful murder of George Floyd, that in the States, for example, 60% of people were saying that they were making buying or selling decisions in part based on their perception of a company's or a business's approach on issues of racial injustice. So that's what they're saying. You are right to point out that there's obviously disparity between what they say and what they do when they're actually buying. But what we know in when you move away from the consumer end to the investor end is that they are voting with their feet and they are not just uh, rolling with the same financial products, which is why you see an explosion of interest and large inflows into the various different ESG and sustainable funds, ETFs, mutual funds, or if you look on the debt side, the volume of green bonds going up and sustainable bonds going up you know, there's something happening there and people are voting with their wallets in that sense on the investor side. Um, but I, I think it's perfectly legitimate to, to point out the disparity for Boohoo, for example, for all of the controversy around the supply chain there. Actually, their their revenue and profits are still in a reasonably, reasonably healthy state. Oh, do you think there's a difference there in how investors are acting and how consumers are acting? There may be. There may be. But in a way, look, um, you know, 20 years ago, neither investors nor consumers really took a big, uh, adopted strong opinions or acted on them and just take the environment. You know, if we don't allocate capital to greening our economies internationally, um, we're not going to be able to keep temperature increases below two degrees. And we know that the effects of climate change in that respect will be far more severe than this dreadful pandemic and just think how awful life has been for so many during this pandemic it could be a whole lot worse if the climate catastrophe becomes real and so you know if i have to pick between uh, no action action on the part of investors but not consumers i'd probably go for the for the latter given the former would leave us in a dreadful predicament to take your proposition, which is for all consumers say they care about these things, they're still buying the products, but investors are taking action. I think that's, we're definitely further forward. When do you think the consumers might catch up with the investors? I mean, maybe it's a bit like the kind of issues with the polling you would have seen when you were an MP. People talked about the shy Tory phenomenon when people in public said, I'm going to vote for Labour, then in the privacy of the ballot box, they voted for Tory. Well, no, I mean, yeah, we are talking about, you know, that they are, consumers are different to investors, but they're also the same as well. Consumers are investors. And I think as, 
the demography changes. I mean, I don't think that the take millennials, I don't think they're going to grow out of caring about ESG issues. There isn't any evidence to suggest that. And so I think demographically, as, as we change and younger generations get older, I think we probably are likely to see more consumer action in this space. You talked about these surveys Edelman's been doing and how you'll be translating that perhaps into the advice you're giving to the companies you're working with. I mean, in your work so far, have you found it easier to understand what consumers and investors want in 2020 than understanding what the electorate wants? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, and of course, those consumers and investors are voters as well. I think the way people approach buying a product whether it's a consumable or an investment product and the way they approach politics are different. Um, I think the thing about your position as a consumer, as an investor, is that you can buy what you want and you don't really have to take into consideration other people's views and wants and needs quite so much, although obviously the whole idea of the ESG is that you do that, but it's not quite the same thing. Whereas with politics, you can't go and buy a bunch of policies off the shelf, which will deliver for you alone and satisfy your own needs and demands without also considering the knock-on impact that it will have on other people. And so much of politics is about where to strike a compromise, where to where you balance the interest. And I think the nature of that process is actually very different in politics relative to when you're investing. And it's also supercharged by ideology. Whereas I think on the investment side, it's a, it's, it's a little bit more straightforward, actually. Um, and so is it easier to read the investor and the consumer than somebody's political instincts and wants and needs? Maybe, maybe. Taking that into account and maybe the fact you don't have to deal with problems you would have faced in Westminster last year, do you think it's possible to do more good in the world of business than in politics? Well, I think fundamentally, I was talking to the chief investment officer of a private wealth firm uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they said to me that they thought they had much more capacity to change things than a member of parliament does through the fact that they managed around £100 billion worth of investments. And I actually couldn't disagree with that. I think you can have huge impact through uh, your ability to, to apply and allocate capital. And I think I'd certainly, during my time as a shadow business secretary, I, 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 you kind of go into politics very idealistic, thinking you can change the world, and you can. But I think the ability of policy, public policy makers to do that relative to people who've occupied those positions of ministers, prime ministers in the past is much more circumscribed by the fact that we live in a globalised world and, and we are subject to forces beyond our control and certainly beyond the control of Westminster, which is why I was such a, I'm such a convinced Remainer and European, because I just think ultimately we're going to control and shape the things that not people around, whether it's social or economical, you, you, you in, in a globalised world, you have to do a lot more of that at a supranational level. And I believe there are ways to do that and that are democratic too. But I'm slightly going off a beaten track here. But yes, I, I mean, the attraction for me was, I, I, you know, how can you change the world in the private sector? I think the ESG space provides you 
very much with an opportunity to do just that at scale. So you originally entered politics as an MP for the Labour Party. Um, and recently, around the world, parties of the left, like Labour, have become increasingly progressive on various social and environmental issues. But in doing so, many of their traditional voters have started to feel like their communities are being ignored and left behind. And I wonder if that raises the question, if we often forget to take into account how some environmental and social causes can impact other ESG issues. If we invest heavily in green industries, is there a risk in leaving behind the communities that depend on jobs in oil or mining, for instance? Well, there have, there have to be. It's a very good question, and, and the answer is there has to be a just transition, and there there is a just transition there for us to grab. Um, but this is why I think um, those who demand that we immediately dump stock in oil and gas without actually having a process of transition and incentives to encourage oil and gas energy companies to diversify into renewables. Uh, You know, those who argue for that kind of absolutist dump the stock approach in relation to oil and gas, I think have got it wrong. Because the the reality is, if suddenly we pulled the rug from all of our oil and gas companies, we we don't have ready-made energy alternatives that can meet demand and will have blackouts. And, you know, the people who will suffer most from that are the, the less wealthy um, the, 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 those from low-income households. So you've got to get the right balance. Now, that said, I, I don't have an issue with, you know, divestment campaigns targeted at coal because there's clearly, clearly cleaner at-scale alternatives to coal that don't damage our environment so much. But absolutely, we've got to, uh, you know, not, uh, if you like, ignore one strand whilst promoting another strand of ESG. And actually, I think that's that's why... One benefit from the pandemic has been that it has, it has shined a light on things like social issues and inequality. Um, I think finally people, instead of talking about immigrants or those from immigrant communities as a problem and, uh, and, and groups seeking to exploit the exchequer for benefits, it kind of shone a light on the fact that, well, disproportionately immigrants are keeping the show on the road, running infrastructure services that we all rely on and risk their lives during lockdown to do that. They're the ones who were um, pushing our relatives around on trolleys in the hospitals, taking them to an incubator. Uh, so I think in that sense, COVID bringing these social issues to the fore, I think has kind of been a, a real wake up call for a lot of people. So I think you've got to get the right balance. Uh, and this is one of the problems I think with populist politics of the right or the left. They like to paint everything in primary colours as if there's kind of like a, a black and white kind of answer to everything. And there just isn't. So you left the Labour Party after it made that lurch to the left under um, Jeremy Corbyn. After the change in leadership recently, will you be voting Labour in the next election? Well, I've left politics now, so I don't have to deal with questions like that. Uh, I'm still a member of the Liberal Democrats. I will remain a Liberal uh, Democrat, but I I haven't uh, left the the political field to dive back into all those issues. So I try and steer clear of um, party politics. And to be frank, I think it's very difficult to be a politician right now. Um, It's an extraordinary time demanding extraordinary things from very ordinary people who are, you know, uh, in it, you know, I think it's in all our interest that whether you're opposition or government, that you, you, you know, they do their jobs and they do them well now because lives are at stake. So it'd be easy for me to take 
pot shots and, and, and criticised from the sidelines, but I, I still f- believe it's a noble calling and a noble occupation. But I just, you know, determined to do something else and try and make a positive contribution in another way in the private sector. So I, I, I try not to get too involved in those those uh, debates anymore. I ask I, that question, I guess, not so much because we're interested in party politics, um, but because I'm interested in where you now place yourself on the political spectrum as an advocate for stakeholder capitalism. I mean, you talked about in your political career, kind of finding yourself caught between the Milton Freeman advocates and the anti-capitalists. Now, how big a role do you think the state should play if you want to see the environmental and social changes people like yourself have been calling for i mean should we be leaving it to the markets to some extent or should we have soft nudges like carbon taxes should the government stop digging its claws in more actively in business kind of what role should the state be playing i think i think it's it's, it's got to be a partnership approach between government and the private sector so take esg at the moment everybody wants to be a hero in setting standards and coming up with the frameworks that should apply in a given situation But the long and the short of it is the only people who've really got authority and a mandate to set the standards that should apply in this space are are policymakers, are uh, people who are parts of elected bodies. And so in that sense, there's a very obvious role for the state to take up. Um, And the EU is doing it with gusto with the EU taxonomy, which will classify investments and activities that a company does and help protect against greenwashing. But on the other hand, when it comes to allocating capital, that is not something that can be left to the government alone. I think it's important that, you know, government facilitates green investment, but just take the UK. We need to, if we want to hit the target of achieving net zero by 2050, we need to spend at least a trillion pounds greening our economy. That equates to at least 70 billion pounds a year on greening the economy. And you're not going to get that kind of allocation of capital from government. I mean, they're just not going to be able to afford to do that. And that's where the private sector comes in. So I don't think it requires or is about domination either by the state or the private sector in this endeavour. It's actually got to be a partnership between the two where they can make the most difference. And obviously, on the right, they're naturally inclined to leaving it all to the market, which I don't think works. And on the left, they'll adopt a, the, 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 the instinct is for a much more statist, top-down approach to these things, which I don't think will work either here. Oh, yes, on the subject of what the right is inclined to do, I mean, earlier this month, we did see the Prime Minister, who has, I guess, previously had a reputation as a bit of a libertarian. He promised to invest, I mean, £160 million in the wind turbine sector, um, his administration has also launched a consultation on bringing forward a ban on new petrol cars. So I'm wondering what are your thoughts on the commitments that have been made by the government so far to green industries? Well, I think they need to be more bold and more ambitious. And I think uh, banning the sale of new petrol cars from 2030 onwards was something that I went into the election arguing for last year. So I think they need to be bolder. And I think the 2050 commitment, there should be an ambition to achieve that far sooner. So I'd say that on the one hand, but on the other hand, if you look at the stuff that the pensions uh, minister Guy Opperman is doing, um, the pension bill is going through Parliament at the moment, where pension funds will be required to take into account um, the TCFD framework, 
I think that's a good thing and moving in the right direction. So, you know, there, there, there are things to, to, to give credit for, but uh, we've just got to be much more ambitious if we're to achieve the goal of uh, averting a climate catastrophe. You talked about the benefits of a globalised approach to these issues. Um, you were a kind of strong voice for remaining in the European Union when you're a politician. And with Brexit now inevitably on the horizon, I'm wondering if you've had thoughts about how that will affect the direction of travel as far as ESG is concerned. I think the, the long and the short of it is that in or out of Europe, we're going to have to comply with their rules. And if you look at all the asset managers in the UK, um, I think it's quite unlikely they're only going to want to offer their products to UK investors. Now, if they want to offer their products to EU markets, they're going to have to comply, for example, with the EU taxonomy, which is will be fully in effect on or by 2022. They're going to have to comply with that if they want to sell into those markets. And so, that I mean, that's that's the folly of the whole thing for me, certainly from an economic point of view, is that we're, we're now going to be in a situation where we have to comply with so many of their rules, but we will have absolutely no influence or say over them. And and that's the tragedy here in many respects. Now, you said you didn't want to speak any more directly on politics, but I just have one final question as someone who's once touted as a potential future leader of the Labour Party. Do you ever look at Boris Johnson as Prime Minister today and think, I could be doing a better job than that? <laughs> um I'll, I'll 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 pass on that um i'll pass on that i think the real question is should he and the government be doing a better job for the country um let's take me out of it and i think undoubtedly the answer to that question is yes um i think that they should be doing a better job for our country and uh, i was prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt for some time at the beginning of the pandemic, because it's such an extraordinary situation. But the catalogue of incompetence and failure has really been quite extraordinary. And I do think the British people are entitled to ask for better and to ask for them to step up and and and, and, and perform far better than they have done to date. Chukramuna, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Interesting to get the insights of someone who I guess who has traveled the worlds of both politics and business so thanks so much for your time thank you great to join you hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy so I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.